me assert my firm belief that the only thing we have to fear is fear itself. Remember, just because you're doing a lot more doesn't mean you're getting a lot more done. Don't confuse movement with progress. We live in a paradoxical time where we have more comfort but less peace, more connectivity but less connection, more information but less wisdom. The purpose of this podcast is to explore these natural tensions with independent voices who will push our thinking. This is the Paradox Podcast. So it took me getting good enough at it to know how good at it I was not. It took me getting just good enough at it to know I'm not good at it at all. You can learn quite a lot from experience. That's one thing. There's something after that. Have you the will and determination to do anything about it? Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of the Paradox Podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Tibbetts. For episode number 18, I chatted with David Sachs, co-founder and general partner at Craft Ventures, about why the best founders create movements, not just startups, what he looks for when making investment decisions, the rise of censorship and the war on free speech in the United States, the decline of institutional trust and independent thinking in our culture, and the rise of political homelessness for folks in the center. Prior to founding Craft Ventures, David founded enterprise collaboration company Yammer, which is one of the fastest growing SaaS startups in history and acquired by Microsoft for $1.2 billion. David first got involved in the technology industry in 1999 when he joined PayPal and became the COO. He has since become a prolific investor, having invested in over 20 unicorns. He also hosts the All In Podcast, one of my absolute favorites, and full disclosure is an LP in my fund, Paradox Capital. I've enjoyed every episode of Paradox thus far, but this is one of my favorite conversations because it felt like we were able to break down the insanity of the last year, and David's cultural commentary and insights have been absolutely incredible to follow. I hope you enjoy this episode with David Sachs. Before we jump into today's episode, are you a founder of a startup? Do you need funding for your startup? The good news is I've launched a seed fund called Paradox Capital. The mission is to arm founders beneath and beyond Silicon Valley's radar with early checks and expert advice to build the next great companies anywhere. If you're an early stage founder, reach out to me at paradox.vc or send me a DM on Twitter and let's chat. Now let's get back to the episode. David, thanks for making time to join me on the Paradox Podcast. Really, really appreciate you taking the time. I've been a huge fan of your cultural commentary over the last year. It's just been pure fire on Twitter. Given all that's transpired, what's an area of change in society that you're optimistic about? And what's an area of change that you're more pessimistic about? Well, I'm optimistic about everything happening in startup world with really the explosion of this entrepreneurial economy, this opportunity economy that we're creating where anybody with a good idea can raise money so easily now to pursue it. And you don't need to have money. You don't need to have connections. You don't need to have influence or whatever. You just need to have a good idea. And there's always some VC who's willing to fund it. And you don't even have to go hat in hand to Sand Hole Road anymore, right? <laughs> There's VCs and, and solo VCs and seed investors who are just throwing money at any good idea. And we're seeing 
I think as a result of that over the last 20 years, the, the tech economy has just gotten bigger and bigger. You know, I, I graduated Stanford in 94 and then came back to do PayPal in 99. And it was very exciting then, but it was a fraction of the size it is yeah. now where, you know, the whole Bay Area got taken over by tech. And now partly because the Bay Area is, is blowing. It, it's uh, an it's unforced that, error. That sort of total unforced error, but it's spreading now to places like Austin and Miami and uh, LA and many other cities and, and globally as well. So the whole economy is getting taken over by tech and that's creating an explosion of opportunity. And, you know, and underlying that trend is the, is, is technological acceleration. And so you're seeing kind of a technological and economic acceleration create an explosion of, of wealth creation and opportunity. So I think that's all the good news. And then the, the pessimistic thing is just everything related to politics and society just feels like it's deteriorating. And so it feels like we're in a competition between technological acceleration and social deterioration. You know, you've got this increasing divisiveness in American society. It's divided. You've got now one side of the political spectrum is, I mean, it's basically embraced socialism, mm -hmm. which is just like extraordinary. I mean, I'm old enough to remember when Ronald Reagan won the Cold War and the idea that, you know, 30 years later, the U.S. could seriously be contemplating socialism is just, you know, it's a real head scratcher. The fiscal deficits now and debt are just exploding. And monetary policy, I mean, Stanley Drunkenmiller had a good interview today on one of the financial news networks. You know, we have $6 trillion of new debt and, and stimulus after we've had a full retail recovery. We're actually about 15% above trend on retail spending as of today. And yet they're still pumping two and a half trillion of QE into the economy and 6 trillion of new debt. And, and by the way, he, he said the only reason why the bond markets are not revolting over this and rejecting it, the way the bond markets would reject it would be to make interest rates go up to a, mm -hmm. a level that's prohibitive is because the Fed is buying 60% of these new bond issuances. So he predicts that the US dollar will lose its status as the world's reserve currency the next 15 years. We'll have to see if he's right about that. But that's certainly if, if the spending keeps being this out of control, we have a lot to worry about there. And so we kind of have this really interesting battle, I think, between everything that's happening with this sort of entrepreneurial ecosystem that we're all involved in, which is incredibly optimistic, and then what's happening in politics and society, which seems very pessimistic. And I, I almost see these forces as being in competition with each other to see which one's going to rule the future. And I'm worried about the wrong one winning. <laughs> <laughs> well, it does very much feel like a race between entrepreneurs creating value as fast as possible and government slash institutions slash, you know, whatever else destroying value as fast as possible. And, it, you know, Again, if the role of government is to create an environment where people, individuals can thrive and build great companies and great families and great communities, you know, pumping trillions of dollars into the economy and having an incredibly divisive climate is not part of that recipe, I wouldn't imagine. Going back to what you just said at the beginning about entrepreneurship really expanding since you first came to the Valley at the beginning, there's kind of this common phrase that's thrown around in Silicon Valley that there's just like sort of an infinite amount of money, but a very limited few number of ideas or companies worth investing in. Do you buy that or do you push back on that and say, actually, the universe of great companies and founders to invest in is expanding? It's not like there's only you know, two great companies a year, eight great companies a year. There's actually a lot of great companies worth, worth funding. Talk to me a little bit about your perspective on that within Silicon Valley. Yeah. I mean, it's absolutely expanding and the number is not static, right? If it's easy for anybody with a good idea to raise seed capital and get started, 
And you know the, the, the tools exist for company creation, whether those are like no-code tools or software building tools or you know, payments infrastructure or, you know, form legal documents like the safe note that take friction out of the process of fundraising. I mean, all these tools exist that lower the barriers to entry for entrepreneurship. You get more ideas being tried, and then that leads to more success stories, you know, later down the the funnel. So I don't think the number of of successful companies in the world is a fixed number and we're just waiting to to discover them or find out what they are. I think this is something that gets influenced by the larger climate around, you know, entrepreneurship. And it's definitely gotten easier and easier to be an entrepreneur. I mean, I remember when I graduated, I graduated from law school in 1998. Part of the reason why I went to law school is I had no idea how to get into entrepreneurship. There was no track. There was no YC. There was no blogging. You know, you couldn't learn about it online. And so I really had no idea what to do. And so I just kind of opted to stay in school. And then eventually, you know, in 1999, I got a little bit lucky that, you know, one of my friends from college, Peter Till called me up and told me about, you know, idea he was working on. And so I ended up joining PayPal. So it's just so much easier today, though, for anyone with a good idea to get started, to get into the tech economy. I mean, again, I remember 20 years ago when I was at PayPal and I was CEO of PayPal, I was trying to convince so many of my friends to drop out of some corporate law track or an investment banking track or a consulting track or whatever to join a startup. And it was so incredibly hard to convince anyone to do it. And now what we see is that the number one major at Stanford is computer science. And everyone wants to graduate from college or dropping out of college wants to be involved in, in tech. And so it's just gotten so much easier. Mm-hmm. And, and that's led to an explosion of the number of companies that get founded every year, and then that leads to a lot more outcomes. There's a lot more unicorns being produced now than there were 10 or 20 years ago. And the magnitudes of those outcomes are way bigger than people expected. Yeah, We've had so many sure. more decacorns being created, for example, in the SaaS space than you know, 10 years ago when I was doing Yammer, we thought a great outcome for a SaaS company would be one to two billion. And now you routinely see, you know, SaaS IPOs in the tens of billions. Yeah, it's been amazing to watch things progress so quickly. I mean, I I only came to Silicon Valley by accident. I came up here for college in 2005 to Berkeley. I was a political science major, so I could have ended up at law school too. Fortunately, I ended up not going that path. But just in that time frame, which again is more recent Silicon Valley history, it's been amazing to watch these shifts and, and things really expand. I want to get back to, for sure, startups and talking about entrepreneurship and SaaS software and all of that. But I want to take a step back and uh, ask a question that kind of gives our audience a little bit more of an insight into who you are. Can you share a story from your childhood or maybe like early adulthood that really had a strong influence on who you are today? Yeah, I mean, I guess the the story that I always resonated with as a kid is my grandfather had emigrated from Eastern Europe in the 1920s or 30s around that time frame and gone to Southern Africa and started a candy factory. And there, that was always something that, you know, as a kid, you know, he would send me candy from the, the candy factory. But I think that's probably where I got my entrepreneurial DNA from. That's awesome. You've described the best startups as not merely being businesses in the making, but actually movements for change, which I think is a really interesting way of framing what startups are. Can you unpack a little bit about what this means? And I think on a related note, 
you know, whether it's millennials or Gen Z, you know, supposedly the the knock on these generations, you know, of which I'm of which I'm one, is that these folks are really interested in doing mission-driven things, building mission-driven companies. How do you think the reality of the fact that great companies are movements kind of lines up with the fact that people are actually searching for meaning and work isn't everything, but work can be a part of that for for people that want to work in tech? Yeah, well, I mean, I think those two things go together. I've always had the point of view that working in business is about creating change and about fulfilling a mission. And it's not just about you know having some narrow definition around making money. And I think the companies, the founders that do the best are the ones that are able to infuse their companies with a sense of mission. And it's important for internal morale and attracting talent, but it's also important for marketing the company. Because at the end of the day, if the purpose of your company is just self-interest, no one's going to care about what you're doing, you know, what you're trying to do in the world. I often discuss this concept in the context of explaining to founders what earned marketing is. I mean, everyone understands paid marketing, right? You spend yeah. money to get people's attention. Earned marketing is you don't spend money, you earn their attention through things like PR and branding and content. And you know, it might be conferences, events. So the question is, well, how do you earn someone's attention? And well, you've got to talk about something that they'd be interested in. You've got to be able to up-level your message. And what you've got to do, I think, as a founder is to figure out what is the change that you want to bring about in the world? There must be something because otherwise there wouldn't be a need for your startup to exist, right? I mean, startups exist, unlike big companies, which are already here, you know, already fulfill a purpose. Startups need to be created because there's something wrong with the world, right? There's something missing or the way that the world is currently doing things is not efficient or it's not productive or it's stupid or whatever. And so in order for a startup to make sense in the first place, the founder has to have a reason. They have to have a point of view on how they want to change the world. And if you can tease that out and create a sense of mission about that, it'll be useful not just for recruiting and motivating employees, but also for attracting an audience to to your your sort of earned marketing. Yeah, 100%. I mean, as a marketer, that's music to my ears. I think that when you're building a brand and a company, you have to stand for something, right? And I think that there's always, especially in the early stages of building a company and through my tiny rolling fund, right? I, I talk to a lot of founders like you do all the time. And there's always this debate of how do we position ourselves in the market? And the way you position yourself in the market is you have to have a perspective. You have to stand for something. Yeah. And you can be a vitamin totally or you can be a painkiller. I find that for most early stage startups, usually killing pain is better than offering some sort of ethereal benefit, but it's really important. And I also think sometimes it's very helpful to have an enemy. What are you battling against, right? You can stand for something, but what are you battling against? And I think that Again, just the same way you need founder product market fit, meaning the founder has to be the right fit for the problem that they're solving. That's going to power them through the ups and the downs of building a company. You need kind of like mission market fit for the company at sort of the aggregate level to keep employees engaged, to keep audiences uh, interested in what you're doing. And so that makes makes total sense to me. What are some of the movements? Well, oh, okay. go ahead. Well, I was going to add something to, to what you just said, which is, I think you're always battling against some version of a broken status quo, always, right? Because mm -hmm. otherwise the startup doesn't exist if the status quo works. So, but I think the challenge in marketing is often describing and giving a name to that broken status quo. Because if you just go out there and say, the status quo is no good, it's like, no, you need to, to name exactly what the enemy yeah. is, right? And so yeah. for example, at Yammer, we, you know, we experimented with a bunch of different marketing, but we tried to name 
the the enemy as you know the org chart you know like the static org chart and yes an org chart is fine for distributing roles but it's not a great way to distribute information information wants to be free it wants to just be distributed through a network not through an org chart so we try to make a rigid org chart into the enemy you know mark benioff with salesforce he described software as the enemy i mean right at the beginning of salesforce he had that whole no software logo and you know created the the phone number 1-800 no software and he tried to describe software as the enemy now back then software was something that was installed on servers by it it wasn't something that was in the cloud and so that's what he really meant is software that has to be installed but you can explain those kinds of nuances once you have people's attention it's more important to get out there with a really strong message about what the enemy is you know elon always describes the enemy as basically fossil fuels or climate change or it's it's basically unsustainable energy and he wants to move the world to sustainable transport and sustainable energy and so you know one one corollary of that is like when one of his competitors like ford or whatever announces a new electric car he doesn't describe them as an enemy he says welcome to welcome to the future welcome to the market because they're not the enemy the enemy is is sort of fossil fuels and so one of the things you can do is if you correctly identify what the real enemy is you know and again it's 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 the thing that's broken about the status quo you don't have to see your competitors as enemies you can see them as followers you know and that's <laughs> yeah. where you want to be is you want to yeah. make them into your followers well, and Elon epitomizes what you're talking about, kind of this jujitsu move of building a movement, right? Versus building just merely a company. Talk about earned marketing. I mean, he's the best earned marketer on the planet. I mean, he, they don't have yeah. to pour tons of money into marketing because they just Zero. earn it all for free, right? It's, it's PR, it's word of mouth, it's everything he does on social. And you know, to some extent, it's even being polarizing and controversial. And I know we'll talk about politics and free speech a little later on in the episode. Switching gears a little bit, when a founder is pitching you, what are some of the, the qualities that you're looking for kind of at a personal level? And what's some of the tangible progress you're also looking for? Well, I mean, the, the, one of the nice things about SaaS investing, which is primarily what I do, is that, that there, there's, there's benchmarks. And, and so it's really easy to look at the data, the numbers. And so some of the things we look at are you know, the ARR, MRR, what's the monthly growth rate? We do like a 12-month CAGR. You're looking at you know month over month what is it we look at the churn versus expansion you want to see that the subscriber base is growing not shrinking on a on a sort of net dollar basis like from a cohorted revenue basis so those are like some of the obvious things that we look at you know going a little deeper i always like to see some sort of distribution trick because ultimately sales are the bottom of the funnel the top of the funnel is is lead gen. So where where are the leads going to come from? And what I've seen in my career is that top down or outbound sales motions are incredibly hard to execute. And you need a, a founder who is you know top notch at sales and marketing to be able to execute either a top down or an outbound strategy. And so the great thing about bottom up strategies is that you can be a product founder. You know, and you don't necessarily have to be great at sales and marketing at the founding. You can just create a product that creates product-led growth. And then, you, look, you will need to get better or good enough at sales and marketing if you want to build a big company, but you don't necessarily need it at day one. So I need to see some sort of like bottom-up go-to-market or, or distribution trick. Or if it's not bottom-up, if it's top-down, there better be a lot of inbound somehow, because unless... You know, third category, if you're extraordinarily good at outbound, okay, but 
you know, it's a very hard thing to count on if you're not like top decile. Yeah, that's more of like a heroic effort that's not always scalable and sustainable. So that makes sense. Totally, totally. So, I mean, I think those are some of the things that help make the decision not completely a narrative for us. And, you know, ever since reading Yuval Harari's book, you know, Sapiens, which basically says that, you know, it's kind of asked the question, what's the difference between Homo sapiens and Neanderthals or other hominid species is all about humans have the ability to come together by creating narratives. Usually those narratives aren't even true. <laughs> <laughs> right. They're usually false, they're usually false narratives, but they act yeah. to bind people together. So it got me thinking, you know, the, the the VC, the fundraising process is very much narrative driven and about spinning a narrative and it revolves around this pitch in which the founder creates a narrative and then everyone's got to kind of buy into it. It's very sapiens-like. And so, look, we listen for the same things that other people do. We want to see vision and, you know, a larger idea and a founder who's persuasive and, you know, got perseverance. They're on their way to creating something much greater and they've got the vision for that. But then we also try to ground it. So it's not completely a made-up sapiens-style narrative. We try to ground it in doing some of this homework which is pretty easy when you're dealing with a SaaS company. Well, and especially in this frothy market when narratives are getting funded left and right without necessarily kind of the foundational stuff underneath to build a, a large sustainable business. I mean, there are funds that will go crazy and do like the $20 million Series A at $100 million valuation with no ARR and Kraft just won't do that. Mm-hmm. Good segue to my next question. Since you sold the Amber to Microsoft, we've seen a wave of impressive enterprise SaaS companies like Slack, companies like that, that... Again, from an IPO and like a market cap perspective, we're orders of magnitude larger than what folks thought was a successful exit 10, 15, 20 years ago. What makes you bullish on SaaS, enterprise SaaS for the next few decades? You yeah. could probably paint some narrative that a lot of what was going to happen has already happened, but obviously you believe the opposite. You believe that the best is yet to come. I would imagine that with remote work and just distributed teams. There's just a whole wave of exciting things coming in the space. But what makes you so bullish over the course of the next, let's call it 10 to 20 years? Well, for me, it's, it's even simpler than that, which is just SaaS is business software. And business is always changing. And businesses need software. And if you think about like what the competitive differentiator is between most companies, technology is either number one or it's you know near the top of the list. And so... You know, people sometimes ask me, well, do you think we'll ever run out of you know, SaaS tools that need to be created? And I think the answer is no, because business is always changing. So there'll always be a need for new kinds of software. And so SaaS really, or when we talk about SaaS or bottom-up SaaS, we're really talking about business software. And, and then the question is, well, is it top-down or bottom-up? And so you know, if you think half the world's consumer and half is business, and then of the business, half is top-down and half is bottom-up, you know, our bet on bottom-up SaaS is that's like 25% of the world of investing. And that's mm-hmm. kind of a big enough playground for us to, to be very successful in. Well, and, and also when folks know what you're actually wanting to invest in, folks know to come to you, right? Because you have right. expertise in that space. There's a lot of funds and a lot of investors that are kind of generalists, but yeah. it is helpful, again, to this point around building a movement, having a perspective, it is helpful to put that out into the world and have a lot of those founders come directly to you. And also investors know, oh, you need to talk to David if you're, if you're doing an enterprise SaaS company. So that, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Switching gears to the world of free speech, political dysfunction, everything we talked about a little bit at the beginning of the podcast, you've been very vocal about what's happening in the US right now around free speech, censorship, accounts being banned, YouTube videos being removed because it violates 
what the WHO and the CDC said, but then changed their mind on, you know, two or three times. Apps being removed from app stores. How do you think we can protect free speech from being slowly destroyed? I think the the frog in the kettle is like kind of a bit of a misnomer scientifically, but metaphorically, it feels like to me, we're kind of slowly being conditioned to accept this as being okay and being normal. How do we defend the First Amendment in this case? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's certainly been a slippery slope that we've slid down way faster than anyone predicted. Just at the beginning of the year in January, it was just Trump getting banned. And I think most people were okay with that because they were sick of his provocative tweets. And I get that. I don't miss the tweets either. But <laughs> for me, it was never about Trump. It was about the principle of free speech. And since then, we've seen an acceleration in the accounts and the viewpoints that are being taken off these sites. YouTube is constantly removing content that, you know, if anyone posts anything contradicting the CDC or WHO, they take it down. Apparently without any sense of irony, given that no one's contradicted the WHO more than the WHO itself. <laughs> right, uh, of course. I mean, you know, they keep coming out with new recommendations that contradict their old recommendations. The CDC, even today, there was a great article in the New York Times by David Leonard, who talked about outdoor transmission. And the CDC had put out numbers saying that the odds of outdoor transmission are under 10%. Well, that is technically true, but it's more like they're under 0.1% or 0.01%. There's not one documented case worldwide, globally, of outdoor spread through casual outdoor contact, not one out of all the millions of cases. And so we know that the percentage is, is, is infinitesimally small, but the CDC says under 10% because they've got sort of the CYA type of bureaucratic incentive sure. to be safely comfortable under that percentage. So. By the way, this is the New York Times calling out the CDC. And before the New York <laughs> Times, it was the Atlantic. Okay. This is not right. Team Red doing it. This, this is, is not, it's not Breitbart, you know, calling them out or something. This is the New York yeah, Times. Yeah, exactly. And so, you know, I've been reading, and by the way, I've been reading the Atlantic. I mean, they've done some really good articles on this. We knew a year ago that outdoor spread was not a yeah. thing, that there was that, you know, COVID was mainly transmitted through recirculated air in, you know, crowded indoor places. And, you know, but nevertheless, you had idiotic mandates like we couldn't go to the beach last summer. So, you know, it'd be one thing if, if the censorship was on behalf of entities that had proven themselves to be correct, but when then you're censoring on behalf of entities that have been repeatedly wrong, I mean, what exactly are you trying to accomplish here? Yeah. I mean, without constant interrogation and questioning of WHO and CDC, they would have been even slower to revise their guidelines. So I don't really understand what big tech is trying to accomplish here. It's kind of gone into this realm of foolishness. It's, it's certainly unprincipled. It certainly doesn't comport with the principle of free speech and the First Amendment, but it's also just stupid at this point. So I've been yeah, strongly critical of big tech for going down the slippery slope of censorship. And I think at what point are we going to stop it? You know, um, uh, yeah, because the reality is that, and we all know this being in tech, is that the public square is now controlled by you know a half dozen companies google apple facebook amazon twitter i mean th if you don't have access to those platforms to what extent do you really even have a free speech sure practice? you can go shout outside and look like a crazy person which in san francisco is the right. norm but you don't actually have <laughs> access to the actual public square. I mean, the public square is Twitter. Right. I mean, we see that's the good right. and the bad that's caught up in that. I agree. I mean, the marketplace of ideas is under attack 
And it's not just that like, oh, philosophically, you know, those of us that are pro-free speech are against that. It's that it's doing actual harm to people's lives. I mean, think about between like, don't wear a mask and then, oh, wear two masks or the whole ban around going to beaches and parks when vitamin D and fitness are all the things that you need to actually improve your immune system. I think it's sort of doubly infuriating that both on a principle level, they're attacking the ability for us to kind of navigate these complex and also dynamic situations. We had new information about the virus. We had to be able to debate that and discuss that. It's mind blowing. You had this awesome tweet. This completely resonated with me. And I've, I've tweeted similar sort of sentiments with the Venn diagram, right? Of people who supported mask mandates in April of 2020, of which you were one, of which I was also one. I was actually wearing a mask on BART in February of 2020. And I looked like an alien because I was reading all of Balaji's tweets and I was concerned. And then people who want mask mandates to end in 2021, and there's basically very little overlap, or at least the perception is there's very little overlap. It feels like more people that I talk to, especially privately one-on-one feel, I think to the message of your tweet, politically homeless. I think they feel like crazy because they're kind of in the center. And we have these two parties that are really incentivized to, to move to the extremes. They're not moving to any sort of middle ground. This is a hard question, but how do you think we get out of this mess? Well, I think we can get out of the mess by having higher quality political leaders. I think the American system is, it is fundamentally a two-party system. Maybe there could be some independent or third party, but really the change has to come from within one of the parties. And it seems to me, like, frankly, the Democratic Party is doing the wrong way. It's kind of embracing this woke socialist agenda. You know, Biden's really the last of the, you know, putative moderates or centrists in the party. And he, you know, and he's still got this $10 trillion tax and spend agenda. So I shudder to think what would happen if it was Bernie Sanders in there or Elizabeth Warren or someone like that. So I think, frankly, the change going to have to come from the other party. And uh, that's a tough pill for a lot of people to swallow. It's a, maybe it's a red colored pill. Especially, um, especially in our <laughs> neck of the woods. Yeah. Yeah. But look, I'm not, I'm not especially partisan about these issues. That's not my agenda. My agenda is not to get people to support one party or the other. It's really sure. about fourth various ideas. And if we can influence people in both parties, that would be a good thing. Yeah, no, I wholeheartedly agree. Actually, the one podcast that I've really been listening to a lot, I think without a commute and without you know going to the gym, my podcast time has deteriorated over the last year. But the one podcast I listen to every Friday is the All In Podcast with you and Jason and Chamath and David. And there's been a lot of red pills lately, but it's just been very, yeah. very entertaining like to I've, watch. I feel like I've become the red pill dealer of the, yeah. of the All In pod. And, you know, I gave Jason a few of those red pills. He chopped them up, snorted them, and he's more red pilled than anybody. But yeah, I mean, look, I think we're seeing a lot of people reacting to this, you know, insane agenda that's being foisted on the American people, whether it's, you know, these COVID lockdowns that will never end and these COVID restrictions that aren't necessary. I mean, I I am pro-vax. I believe vaccines work. That's why we don't need to continue having these, you know, crazy restrictions. Look, the, the opportunity economy that we were talking about before is the alternative to, to this, to socialism. So we should be nurturing that, not stifling it with insane taxes. So I think issues like that are really causing a lot of people to flip because, yep. um, you know, Jason and Chamath, a year ago, we were definitely on team blue. And I wouldn't say they're on team red now, but they're definitely expressing a lot of red pilled views. Sure. Yeah. Team Purple at the very least. So one other related question to that, 
If you were advising political entrepreneurs within, let's say in this case, the Republican Party, let's play this out and assume that the Democrats keep trending towards kind of socialism and the hard left continues its ascendancy within the party. What would your advice be to political entrepreneurs within the Republican Party? And are there any specific models that you're excited about of you know, a direction that seems more inclusive, more centrist, more likely to gain traction and kind of get us out of the culture war mess that we're in? Yeah, I think the the right solution is, I think in a place like California, especially, what people want is a politician who can simultaneously be tough and, and tolerant. So mm-hmm. tolerant on social issues, tolerant on lifestyles, you can live the lifestyle you want, you can be the person you want, you know, liberals on sort of personal freedom, those kinds of social issues, yeah. but fiscally responsible, tough on crime because crime is really out of control right now in places like San Francisco and LA, a, a tougher policy on homelessness, which is out of control in California. I mean, there's got to be some quid pro quo. You're going to have billions of dollars of these services. You also need to have treatment for drug addiction because that's a huge part of the homeless problem. So I think you know people are crying out for a more sane, tougher policy, but you know, with with a more tolerant social agenda. So, I mean, that's kind of broadly where my politics are is fiscally responsible, socially tolerant, and, you know, I would say more cautious on international intervention. You know, I think both parties have been guilty of supporting all these stupid foreign wars that we've gotten in over the last couple of decades. I think, you know, what I just described, I really feel like there's a huge number of people in the middle who would embrace some sort of agenda like that. Oh, completely. Uh, Well, you see it happening. I mean, on some level, what's happening on Miami is that, right? I think the vision that Suarez is articulating is kind of this pragmatic, pro-innovation, pro-growth sort of vision, but it's combined with very tolerant on, on the social issues front. It's an incredibly diverse city in Miami. You and I both have folks that we know that are definitely registered Democrats that are huge fans of what he's doing there. And I think in the case of California, which you referenced, of which we're both Californians, I think that kind of a recipe, something similar to that, but obviously tailored to the state could work here. And that kind of leads to my next question, which is, you know, we have all these recalls going on across California. We've got obviously the Newsom recall. And I know that your your buddy Chamath was considering running for a little while. I I was hoping that he would. I really liked the idea of like a pro-business Democrat who was wanted to lower taxes and do school choice. I think that could be really cool. I think you'd be a fantastic candidate as well. And then we've got Udine in San Francisco. We've got the Board of Education, which is an absolute circus in San Francisco. How do you think this plays out? Do you think there's enough of a revolt to sort of sustain us through these recalls? Or do you think that between more STEMI payments from California and maybe an attempt to reopen very late in the game, that these folks will be able to survive, you know, sort of a populist uprising in California. Well, I support all these recalls because it's just so outrageous what's been happening. <laughs> I mean, you know, let's just go down the list. You had Newsom have the most restrictive lockdown policy in the country and go on the longest. I mean, I don't fault anyone for lockdowns that occurred at the beginning of the pandemic because we were still learning what was going on. Yeah. But by the summer, it was pretty clear that they could be far more narrowly tailored you know, we talked about you know this idiotic mandate that you couldn't go to the beach. Um, we knew by then that outdoor spread was not a, a major vector of transmission. So, you know, and then we had this back and forth that they, we allowed the restaurants to have outdoor dining, then we shut them back down, then we opened them back up. I mean, who is he taking advice from? And then meanwhile, he's breaking his own lockdown rules by with the whole French laundry <laughs> thing. And, but look, my, my real point about that is, I mean, yes, it was hypocritical, but the, the thing that's 
that's really bad about it is if he thought that going to French Laundry would truly jeopardize you know him or his his wife's life, you know, they wouldn't sure. have done it. Right. Of course. He knew the reason he did it is because he knew it wasn't a big deal from a health perspective to go right. attend that dinner. But then why is he preventing everyone else to stay from doing it? Why can't you use that common sense that you reflect in your own behavior? Your own behavior reflects the fact that you know it's a yeah. tolerable risk. So why are you gonna forbid everyone else to engage in it? That's the thing that really grates on me, not the fact that it's very much myself. like rules for thee, but not for me. It's kind of like sending your right. kids to private school, but then you keep the school shut down, even though we have tons of evidence that scientifically opening the schools is completely fine. I mean, it's right. it's that level so of hypocrisy. Let's, let's go on to that. So we have this SF school recall, which I mean, man, there are like multiple reasons to recall these guys. Number one, they've mm -hmm. kept the schools closed, even though the schools have been open everywhere else in the country for months now without an increase in cases. So we know it's fine. The science predicted it. You know, all these people who say follow the science, they're not following the science on this. Kids are not a major vector of transmission. So we could have reopened the school. We're losing a year. There's a year of learning loss. There's a year of social isolation for our kids that's completely baseless. But the reason why that has happened is because the teachers unions want to keep these schools closed. They want to be on permanent vacation. And they're Gavin Newsom's biggest donor, and he won't tell right. them to go back. He just expressed the opinion, well, I think schools should reopen. Yeah, but that's just your opinion. Like, Gavin, you got to, like, make it happen. You're the governor. You can't just yes. say that it's your opinion they should reopen. You need to go to those teachers' unions and say, listen, we know the science now. Schools have reopened in the rest of the country. We know it's not a problem. You guys need to go back right now. So what did he do? Instead of doing that and saying laying down the gauntlet, he created some financial incentive. And we just saw what happened in, in SF, the school board there is going to open the schools for one day at the end of the year so they can grab $12 million in cash from Newsom's incentive program. I mean, it is completely corrupt. That's These so people corrupt. do not care about the kids. They just care about their own financial benefits. I mean, for them, for these education unions, it's all about the Benjamins. And by that, I don't mean students named Benjamin, okay? Um, <laughs> or historical I mean, figures it, named Benjamin either. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. They don't care about Benjamin Franklin either. Definitely like, not. Uh, no, he's canceled cancel. for sure. Yeah, he's canceled. So, I mean, it's just amazing. So you've got that. So that's what's going on at the education level. And of course, the parents are absolutely up in arms about this. They want their kids to go back to school. And then you, get, you, know, you had cases like the Oakley School Board, where the entire school oh board had God. to resign. Because they got caught on a hot mic saying that the only reason these parents want us to, to go back is so that uh, is to babysit their kids while they do. Right. Go. I mean, like, no, they want to get their kids in education. They don't want their kids to be traumatized for a year with no social interaction. It is just unbelievable. And so what we have is in a place like California, it's this really weird marriage of ideology and corruption mm -hmm. where you know the ideology is is taking abraham lincoln's name off the schools and the corruption is just giving in to these special interests these education unions keeping the schools closed you know continue to give them more and more financial benefits without any improvement in the education that our kids receive and it's you're, you're just wondering why is this tolerated it's tolerated because of political corruption it's because they are the biggest donors to Gavin Newsom and other politicians in California. And so you've got this, California is like this weird example of, you've got this most like virtue signaling, you've got this like really strong ideology, but as married with in practice, it's just political corruption. 
Yeah. Um, and I think this is a thing that people across the country are reacting to is this sense that all of our institutions are completely corroded and, and rotted and we need to revitalize them. We need an agenda of revitalization. And anybody who points this out is instantly denounced as being some, you know, crazy right winger. It's like, look, all I want to do is have school choice. I just think anybody in the country should be able to get a top rate education. Why should a poor family not be able to have the ability to send their kids to the school of their choice? Why are they trapped in a school that may not be very good? The answers here are so obvious, but it's just political special interests that prevent it from happening combined with this sort of like virtue signaling and denunciation and cancel culture that happens on social media where anyone who speaks out to try and make it better is instantly hounded. You mm -hmm. know, what am I really attacking? I'm attacking structural racism. The, the structural Absolutely. Racism. The structural racism is trapping kids from disadvantaged families and backgrounds in schools that they have absolutely no choice over and they have absolutely no power to improve. That is structural racism. But if you point that out, I mean, it's like that's just not part of the, the agenda that sure. gets all this, that gets all the attention. Well, it's this very Orwellian world of if you attack, you know, what's happening with our school system, you're somehow some lunatic on the super far right. Or if you question something around like the mask wearing sign, you know, it's like, oh, well, follow the science, follow the experts. And, you know, every time you hear that, like you're about to hear essentially something non-scientific or something that's basically a lie. I mean, the mask wearing is a good example because you're right. I was very early to supporting the idea of, of not just mask wearing, but having a mask mandate because I thought it was a health externality, right? I mean, if you're potentially emitting infectious particles, that's a- well, And that's we had data in South Korea and Singapore and all these countries right. that were absolutely demolishing the growth curve of the virus with it. So we knew that it would work. That's right. The countries that were doing the best were the, were the, were the Asian countries, not just the totalitarian ones, but the, the free ones that mm -hmm. they were all fastidious about mass wearing. They were all having tremendous success controlling the virus and while we were not. And so, yeah, I agree. It seemed like a very high benefit, low cost thing to do. I was supporting it back in you know March of 2000, while the CDC, the WHO, the Surgeon General, and you know most political leaders were saying that we shouldn't do it. You know, and then yeah. I don't know if this was what, what really happened or some sort of weird political cover. It was like a supposed noble lie. From then on, they nuked their credibility. Mass became political, which was the worst thing that happened. Right. One of the worst things in the whole pandemic was, you know, if you're on the left, you're going to wear a mask till next year and the year after. And if you're on the right, you can't be bothered to have your liberty infringed to wear a mask in the grocery store. I always thought that was the most ridiculous thing ever. Like we have to politicize everything in this awful cultural moment that we're in. And, and it really created a great deal of destruction in our society because we couldn't just align around one pretty basic thing. It's, it's pretty sad to be right. honest. Yeah. I mean, look, I thought that, I think I said this on the pod that the, the big mistake I think that Trump made was not putting on the mask soon enough. And I think mm -hmm. the big mistake that Biden's making is not taking it off soon enough. Exactly. We're, right. We're signaling we're signaling to people that the vaccines don't work or they're, they're, they must not be very efficacious if you don't trust them. I mean, not only do we know that outdoor spread isn't an issue, so even if we didn't have the vaccine, we know that outdoor mask wearing it would be fairly pointless. But in combination with the vaccines, which are highly effective, you certainly don't need it. So why, why is Biden walking to the podium wearing a mask, especially outdoors? It doesn't make any sense. Or other politicians, you know, Newsom is. And so, you know, on Twitter, I'm being like denounced for telling people to take off the mask 
by all these people who are trying to tell me that I'm like advocating for killing people or something. I'm like, look, nitwit, like I was in favor of masks over a year ago when you were behind the curve and we're against them because you're just following whatever your favorite political (laughs) leader said. You actually don't even know the history of my position on this, but I actually am like paying attention to the science on this. You're just following some political leader du jour and virtue signaling on the issue. So yeah, it's pretty- It's been, I think it's been an eye opening year for all of us. I can't unsee the stuff that I saw over the course of that year. We didn't even, and we don't need to get into it now, but we didn't even touch on the media pretending like they were super bullish on, on their concern for COVID when we know we all saw the article that came out in Recode making fun of Andreessen Horowitz. I mean, that was in like mid February of 2020. So they can gaslight us all they want, but a lot of us saw the truth. And I think What's been refreshing yeah. and very heartening for me is seeing, you know, I, I go outside again where there's low transmission, very safe and talk to the neighbors and they've been doing that all year. And I, neighbors of all political stripes, neighbors from every conceivable country, our neighborhoods filled with immigrants from Brazil and Bulgaria and Afghanistan. And just hearing them shift their position on things like school choice, shift their position on, on these things has been really amazing, right? Just to see people kind of open their eyes in that way. And I hope we, we see more of it. I, I know we're running short on time. I have two last questions. These are questions I ask every guest. You can take them in any direction you want. And you've already kind of answered this question multiple times previously, but I'll, maybe you can take it in a different direction. I think it was very much popularized by your former colleague, former boss at PayPal, Peter Thiel. What's something that you believe that most people don't, maybe that you haven't touched on uh, so far in the, in the conversation? Yeah. I mean, I guess the thing that we just talked about where I've been trying to get people to see these risks in a proper sort of statistical light, whether it's like the risk of outdoor transmission or you know the risk of actually getting sick with COVID post-vaccine. We now have over 90 million people who've been vaccinated and the CDC collects data on people who've gotten sick with COVID post-vaccine. And then there's only been something like 408 hospitalizations or deaths, serious cases, Right. Out of something like 90 million. And so the odds of you getting a very serious case of COVID post-vaccination, it's, it's lower than the odds of being struck by lightning. We can stop all these restrictions and lockdowns and mass mm-hmm. and all this stuff. But people are so programmed now and they're so propagandized and ideologized by the media around this. And like you said, the media were the first ones to be laughing off COVID yes. and mocking the people taking it seriously. And then they pretended like it was only Trump that did that. And oh, we were on the ball from day one. It was totally fake news. They were actually more on Trump's side when many people that are now being attacked for trying to be a little more reasonable in the approach and the statistics were actually pretty early to this, yourself, Balaji included. Right. And and now the media is being irresponsible by overhyping the so-called breakthrough cases or the idea that there are the variants uh, of concern that the vaccine doesn't actually cover against so far that has not been true. You know, Israel is sort of the canary in the coal mine on this. Look, I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I'm certainly not saying there couldn't arise a variant that's vaccine resistant. If that happens, we're back to square one or we're going to have to get booster shots or something. But so far that hasn't happened. And But the longer the virus stays out there because people aren't getting vaccinated, the larger uh, petri dish it has to keep mutating, and then it could really become a problem. But so the canary in the coal mine for me is Israel, because substantially all of the population 
now has gotten the Pfizer vaccine, cases are just negligible and there's been no you know, breakouts. And they fully reopened. And so it's basically the US right. in six months or, or whatever. I, I think part right. of the challenge right. is when you have this common sense approach and independent thinking around things, you're battling against, especially on Twitter, this zeroism that like until there's literally zero cases for some indeterminate amount of time, we're going to keep wearing the mask. We're going to keep freaking out. We're going to keep kids out of school. We're going to keep living in right. fear. And it's just, we take risks all the time. We get in cars. We, we do all kinds of things that are inherently dangerous. We make a calculated risk to move our lives forward. And if the goalpost, remember the goalpost was originally smashed the curve. Well, we've, we we're in the process of doing that. Right. And it keeps moving yeah. and moving and moving. And I think we have to have a very balanced approach to this. I think you're right that we're never going to get to zero cases of COVID. I mean, the, the, no. the virus is going to be in the background forever, just like the flu is. And there will be recurrences every year and there will be localized pockets of outbreaks uh, that we're going to have to deal with. However, the question is, wh when will the global pandemic be over? And I think it'll be over very soon. And it's basically, you know, the pandemic is over in LA County. I mean, there's like almost yeah. no cases anymore, no new cases. It's basically, it's very close to being completely over. And I think your prediction months ago was Memorial Day, right? And that's basically coming to yeah. fruition in large parts yeah. of the United States. My, my COVID prediction track record hasn't been perfect, but it's been better than most. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, yeah. But, but, but yeah, I mean, but, but look, I mean, zeroism as a political philosophy is a great justification for those who want to govern with emergency powers mm -hmm. and people who have a totalitarian instinct or impulse, sure. it's the perfect excuse for them to suspend normal operating procedure. I mean, in California, these lockdown restrictions were never passed by the legislature. You know, Gavin Newsom imposed them single-handedly under emergency mm -hmm. powers that mm -hmm. have not yet been yielded. They also right. did billions of dollars of no-bid contracts to his political supporters using these powers. So there are a lot of politicians who would love to keep operating this way. And so if the, the goalpost, like you said, is zero cases, they're going to be able to operate this way forever. The goalpost has to be, you know, T0, you know, the, the, the rate of infection is dropping rapidly to, yeah. you know, to, to very, very low numbers in an area like we have currently in LA or San Francisco. Yeah. And, and at that point, there's no reason to have all these restrictions. Yeah, fully agree. Last question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? You know, my, my grandmother had a favorite biblical aphorism, which was uh, a good name is more valuable than oil. She actually said it in Yiddish, but there, it, there, I think it's a, it's a biblical quote. And yeah, I think it's a good philosophy for, for business. Just, you know, see the long term. Yeah. And taking care of people is, is better than short-term optimizations about you know, money and things like that. Yeah. The phrase I like that kind of encapsulates the spirit of that aphorism, I think it's probably attributed to Naval, but I'm not really sure. It's play long-term games with long-term people. And this idea that if you're playing that long game, it really does compound in a big way in, in any career, but certainly in, in building companies, investing uh, in companies as well. If folks, particularly early stage enterprise SaaS founders, want to get connected with you, what's the best way for them to reach out? You know what I would say is I'm going to make them do the work of getting some sort of uh, warm introduction to me. So I'll tell you what, uh, they can DM me yeah. on Twitter and I'll vet them first yeah. and then I can send the intro to you. It's double opt-in though, yeah. folks. We only do double opt-in intros. No more Perfect. single opt-in intros. Cool. Well, this has been Perfect. fantastic. Thanks so much for making the time. Really enjoyed the conversation. It's been one of my favorites so far. And yeah, thanks so much, David. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kyle. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of The Paradox podcast. 
We're aiming for commute length conversations with original thinkers that will push your perspective and pull you into the marketplace of ideas. If you're new to the podcast, we encourage you to check out our previous episodes. For episode number 17, I chatted with Lex Euler, founder and CEO of Peachy, about how a hospital bill that bankrupted her family set her on a mission to fix the broken medical billing system, leveraging Twitter to find early employees, customers, and investors, and her nonlinear journey to becoming a founder. This last year obviously has been strange for all of us, and it's a really interesting time to choose to start a company. Why did you decide to start a company now of all times? Yeah, I did not think it was the right time. And I mean, it was by accident. I tweeted something in November and by December I had a company. It was like not what I wanted to do. It was not really on my roadmap. It was something I had talked about very briefly, like one conversation back in July with one person and hadn't really like pulled anything together from there. But yeah, I just I tweeted about a medical bill that went to collections and that finally falling off my credit report. And from there, it was all of a sudden like investors were reaching out. And then I was telling them I wasn't fundraising because I didn't have a company and I like had no idea what I was doing. And one night I got on a call with Dayton Mills, who's the CEO of Branch. And he was just like, I will Venmo you $1,000 right now to incorporate. And I was like, that's not what's holding me back. And he was like, (laughs) I will do it and I will help you and you can figure this out. And by the next day I was incorporated. I know we'll talk more about the founding story and the origin story of the company. Can you talk a little bit about raising money in the middle of a pandemic? Yeah, I mean, in a lot of ways, I feel like I was lucky that I didn't know much about the fundraising world because it didn't seem like different. It wasn't like a different experience for me. It's my only experience is during it, like during a pandemic. I think what was really interesting about it was I did it while I had a full-time job. I had lightly told my boss I was thinking about leaving. Like I was like, I might go start this company. And he was like, come back after Christmas break and let me know what you decide. And I gave myself two weeks. I had a week and a half off from work. And then I took three vacations days before that and I was like if I can raise this round in this two weeks over Christmas I will leave my job and pursue this and that's what I did everyone told me you're gonna get 40 no's before your first yes I had seven yeses before my first no wow Um, and also everyone tells you that you should raise a friends and family round first and I was like nobody in my family is an accredited investor I'm starting a company because my parents bankrupted themselves over medical bills like That doesn't apply here. That's a wrap for this episode of the Paradox Podcast. If you'd like to connect, you can follow me on Twitter at Kyle Tibbetts. If you enjoyed the episode, please rate and review us on iTunes to spread the word. And until next time, take care of yourself. Hey, thanks for sticking around a few extra seconds. Just wanted to reiterate that if you're an early stage founder and you're in the process of fundraising, my seed fund Paradox Capital is actively investing in founders all over the country and in fact, all over the world. The plan is to invest in at least 12 founders this year, probably many more next year. Just head over to paradox.vc to learn more and I'd love to chat. Take care.